Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Following the end of the Second World War, in a remote Scottish farmhouse, George Orwell sat down to write his final book, 1984, where a bleak dystopian society lives under mass government surveillance and the suppression of individualism. Such is the enduring relevance of 1984, Orwellian is now the universal adjective for anything totalitarian. But Orwell's warning came too late for East Germany, when in 1949, just four months after the book was published, it embarked on its own journey towards dystopia. Following the surrender of the Nazis, Germany had been divided into four military occupation zones, controlled by Britain, the United States, France and the Soviet Union. While West Germany reorganised and gained independence from its occupiers, forming the Federal Republic of Germany as a capitalist democracy, East Germany established itself as a socialist republic, loyal to Moscow. The Socialist Unity Party maintained rule over East Germany by influencing and controlling the population, constructing a network of spies to identify and suppress dissident voices. This apparatus of control was shown in the lives of others, which won the 2007 Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. And the Oscar goes to, sorry, I was waiting. Germany for the lives of others. Set in East Berlin, the film shows how the Stasi, the secret police agency of the Communist Party, used domestic surveillance to monitor and prevent outside influence, particularly from the West. And at its height, the Stasi maintained files on more than 6 million people, one third of the population of East Germany. Despite the Stasi's 40-year reign, it is no coincidence that the film is set in 1984. East Germany had become the totalitarian world which Orwell had predicted. Art is often a predictor of life, and Orwell's warning is now more relevant than ever. As the coronavirus spreads from country to country, the response from many governments has been tighter regulations and ever-increasing infringements on civil liberties. With the large parts of the world on lockdown and social distance in the new normal, technology has become both the antagonist and the protagonist for navigating this crisis. While mobile phones can be used to track and trace infections, these large pools of location data are a goldmine for oppressive states. You only need to look to Hong Kong right now, as the Chinese government dismantles democracy, location data of protesters would be a useful tool for Chairman Xi's own Stasi, the Ministry of State Security. We have a very important thing to do today. Melvin Kranzberg, an American historian and professor of history at Case Western Reserve University, wrote six laws to explain society's unease with the spread and influence of technology. The first of which states, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. But it was his sixth law, technology is a very human activity, which illustrated the human influence on whether it is used for good or bad. With the exponential growth in AI, computational power and synthetic biology, humans now have godlike powers to both cure disease and end humanity. As the world adapts to this pandemic and the lens is firmly on technology, will Skynet win the last war and will I ever get my hoverboard? From Bedford, UK, I am Peter McCormack and this is Defiance.
Mr. Zhang, an office worker in Shanghai, couldn't buy a train ticket to go to see his dying father on the other side of the country. Not because he didn't have any money, not because he has a criminal record, and not because he was on lockdown. Mr. Zhang couldn't get a ticket because he had made it onto one of the communist regime's new blacklists, along with 18 million other people in China, as part of their ever-expanding social credit system. A system for establishing trust, you can find yourself on a blacklist for such actions as swindling customers, false and misleading advertising, or failing to pay a fine. But when that fine is for a journalist exposing corruption amongst high-level officials, as which happened with Li Hu, the social credit system provides the state with a tool for suppressing critical thought. This Orwellian way of life is not just confined to China. Governments across the world are increasingly using technology to spy on ordinary citizens, and coronavirus is accelerating this. To both manage and exit lockdowns, technology is at the forefront of people's minds, and I wanted to find out what a post-coronavirus tech world is going to look like in all its good, bad and Orwellian glory. So, I asked futurist and author Jonathan Brill, will I get my hoverboard before the robots take over? I think there are two answers to that question. The reality of technology is it's not good or bad. It's, It's both the answer and the problem. And so when I think about the good and the bad of technology, it's that balance, right? How do we create a better world? How do we create those hoverboards? How do we create vaccines? How do we create more efficient food production for the planet? And at the same time, we know that those things can have devastating impacts you know, on the climate, on society, and so on and so forth. But I would ask a different question. Yeah, do you really want to live at the beginning of the last century in a world of colonization? Do you really want to live in a world where people were dying in much greater numbers because of the 1918 flu? Because we didn't have the health care, because we didn't have the social safety nets. And so when I think about technology in the future, when I think about hoverboards, when I think about rocket ships, when I think about SpaceX, you know, and all of these amazing things that are happening, you know, I think about them in that context. Are they pushing the world forward? I don't think we're moving towards Skynet in the way that it was described in Terminator. I think we are moving into a world where we are in much tighter relationship with compute, where it's an extension of our memory, an extension of our cognition. If you take a look at just about anything today versus 20 years ago or 30 years ago that uses our minds, right? We're far more productive today than we were just in 2000 because we're able to offload our memory. We're able to offload a lot of processing. We are able to allow computers to do complex mathematics that only PhDs used to be able to do. We undoubtedly live in a privileged time, and technology has improved our lives in numerous ways. But the exponential growth in technology advancements puts us at a time where the sci-fi movies of our childhood are becoming reality. So when we think about self-driving cars, when we think about drone technology, you know, what is really interesting 
are the technologies underneath those, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's low-cost sensors, whether you know, it's robotic technology. And those are going to change almost everything we do. The internet changed cognitive work, but it, in many ways it didn't change physical work. It didn't change the fact that people farm on farms. It didn't change the fact that millions and millions of people do repetitive work in factories. And it turns out that as you start to have this intersection between the physical and the digital world, it becomes possible to link those two. And so we're starting to see the beginning of a revolution that's far bigger than what we saw during the internet revolution, during the computer revolution. There's this great quote from Lenin that goes something like, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. We've just experienced those weeks for education. With education a casualty of lockdowns, parents have become teachers and college students have begun questioning the value of their degrees. Where economists point to the cost of university education largely buying a market signal rather than the acquisition of skills, technology is highlighting the imbalance of cost in operating large campuses. But it isn't just education. This pandemic can be a reset button for everything. While mobile phones have connected us to each other, they have disconnected us from the world outside. An artist no longer walks on stage to thousands of screaming faces, but a sea of mobile phones. And rather than enjoying the performance, we have become addicted to documenting it for others. In a world of social distancing, even the in-person concert becomes redundant. Rather than touring the world, the artist can now play a single show for millions in a virtual world. The world we saw in Ready Player One, but nobody is holding up their mobile phone to share it, because anyone can be there. A virtual world where we can live, work, engage with friends, and, as Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur says, even start relationships. In the past, it would have been very unusual to start off with a virtual dinner date, whereas now this is becoming you know, commonplace. And this means that this is, this is giving us more options, more choices in the ways in which we can start to get to know each other. And of course, any you know, real engaged relationship requires being in the same place at the same time. But there are also ways in which we can enjoy each other's company, establish relationships. People sometimes have to be in different places and they can you know, give each other pleasure or to be engaged at a distance as well. One of the great opportunities from being able to do things in virtual worlds, sometimes interacting with real people, sometimes interacting with AI, is in fact to learn new ways of being, new ways of expressing ourselves, new ways of relating. These are things that we can learn. These are at their best learning environments. If we think about how technology can augment our sexuality from a positive perspective, there are many, many possibilities. Part of it, of course, is in terms of remote sex and virtual sex, where if we are not in the same place as our partner, we can still give each other pleasure in a variety of ways. And just uh, earlier this week, I spoke to Howard Rheingold, who coined the term teledildonics in 1990. And uh, that he described it to me as this uh, idea of saying, well, the technologies weren't ready for it then, but if we envisaged 
perhaps 2020, back from those uh, earlier days, that we would have the technologies where it feels immersive and we can connect to give each other pleasure at a distance. There's also the, you know, the fraught topic of robots, where robots could be whatever we want them to be, could be the, our perfect uh, lover. And one of the real dangers here is that they could be more enticing than a real human, as they don't talk back, they just do whatever we want, and we have the ability to have pleasure at choice. And there is the potential for robots in a sexual context to educate us, to be able to allow us to explore new possibilities that we might not have wanted to try with a human before we start to learn that we like this or how to do things, to be able to take those journeys with our partners and go in these new directions. So there's so many possibilities where technologies can augment our sexual expression. And sexuality is so fundamental to what it is to be human that I believe that this is a direction which we must explore. We must be cognizant of the possibilities, of the dangers, and the potential. These virtual worlds where you can live, love, and learn are not here yet, but the building blocks exist. An Oculus Quest allows you to climb mountains, star in a porno, and fight aliens on distant planets. Technology has brought aspects of our lives into our homes. The laptop is a new classroom, Zoom is the new boardroom, and VR rooms are hosting conferences. And outside of technology, coronavirus has led to changes in our lives which allow us to finally deliver on our New Year's resolutions. People are exercising more, cooking fresh food, and spending more time with their family. And for many people, the elimination of the commute is the new normal they will want to hold on to, and companies are reacting to this. As an example, Facebook, with its 45,000 employees, announced it will permanently embrace remote working. It's not new that we have virtual organisations. There's a number of organisations, over 1,000 people, which have never had an office and they're entirely virtual. So, and this, you know, these technologies have been available for quite a time. There's no very little advanced technologies that those organizations today are using for this remote work. We've had video conferencing for literally decades. So what we are seeing is this choice where we can start to build organizations where we can rebalance between office, which is sometimes it's worth having time together where we can build trust and collaborate and build relationships that are valuable. Sometimes work from home when that's most convenient, but also sometimes work in a third space, which is not home and not office. And the best organizations will give people the choice, give people the flexibility. So we will not have to commute as much. We will have more activity in local communities where people can not get out of their homes, but also interact with others, get some great coffees, worked alongside other people. And this will start to give a different structure to cities the different ways in which we engage. And this, again, takes us away from this tyranny of the nine to five, where we can start to have more flexibility in more ways. These changes to our relationship with the office are echoed by tech determinist Sam Lesson, who identifies that there will also be secondary impacts of this. I think, this is, I think that the, the impact on how people and where people work is going to be the biggest legacy of COVID, for sure. But I, I, like, I ran a poll on Twitter the other day. Where I was, I said, I asked you know people who follow me, which is a terribly skewed sample of humans. 
you know, do you think you're going to go back after COVID to working in office five days a week, four days a week, you know, two to three less? 60% of people thought they'd be in the office three or less days a week, right? And only about less than 20% thought they'd be in five days a week. And that's directional, but I think it says something, which is I, I don't think offices are going completely away. And I think it really depends on the type of work. But I do think that the number of people working from home or working remotely is going to skyrocket. And the secondary impact of that long term is huge. What happens to commercial real estate? What happens to businesses supported by commercial real estate? What happens to the exurbs? You know, how do we think about like all the infrastructure built around physical space? I just I think it's going to change massively. I know for myself and for the team Finn, the company I'm building, there's no chance we're going back to the office five days a week. I don't think it's going to be zero. I think we still want to see people, but that's all going to change. And then there's going to be even impacts even bigger than that, which is like, all right, well, if all of a sudden we really move the future of work and remote work in from you know tens of years out to like next year, you know, what does that do for the supply and demand of different types of labor? You know, all of a sudden the job market gets super competitive globally, which is good. It's very open. Anyone can participate and work on any job, but it's also going to really hurt wages, right? Because all of a sudden, like, you know, if I can hire from anywhere, the number of qualified people goes way up that I can reach, right? Um, and it's just a simple supply and demand problem. So yeah, I, I think that the basically the the forced realization of remote work working and people being forced to spend months figuring it out. The other thing, the barrier of entry has been crossed. There's no way it's going back to the way it was. The impact that technology will have on the job market goes way beyond enabling home working. Long before coronavirus shut down the world, advances in technology will present a wider challenges for society. While self-driving cars will reduce accidents, millions of taxi and lorry drivers will lose their jobs. Farmers may become redundant as higher yields move meat production from the cow to the petri dish, and surgeons may become obsolete as Skynet Phase 1 performs remote robotic surgery, never needing a day off and removing human error. It is the most advanced technologies which propose the biggest questions to society. When we consider the impact on jobs and on taxes, we need to consider what they mean for the future of work and, and the future of life. Many of the jobs that we had to do before the digital revolution, before the internet revolution, uh, were replaced. You know, and they were replaced by different types of work. These types of jobs will be replaced, and they'll be replaced by different types of work. And that's going to shift the way that we do taxation, just like the internet revolution, just like the communications revolution shifted the way we did taxation. And it's going to shift the way that we think about what is a good life, what is a good meaningful contribution to society when repetitive work becomes less important. Right, to, to producing the goods, producing the calories that we need to survive. While Kranzberg's sixth law of technology considered the human factor, we are now in a world of artificial intelligence. When faced with ethical decisions, how will AI make choices? The trolley problem is an ethical test which highlights the challenges of driverless cars. The shape of the problem is a runaway cart is heading down a track and is certain to hit five people. But you can pull a lever and a cart will change tracks but there is someone on the other track. Do you pull that lever, change the course of history, and kill one person to save the other five? This is a similar challenge which driverless cars face, but with many scenarios. Do we pre-program all scenarios, or do we allow AI to make the final choice? Faced with crashing into a granny to save a baby, what should and would AI do? And how many grannies is a baby worth? How would AI value life differently from humans, 
and how many steps are we from AI seeing humans as unnecessary? Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, predicted in his book Homo Deus that AI will create a useless class of humans. And he isn't the only one concerned. While noting its promise, Bill Gates highlights the danger of AI, and Stephen Hawking warned that it could end mankind. I think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. The world of synthetic biology faces similar humanity-ending questions, something which author Rob Reed questioned in a series of Medium posts. There was a thing that everybody will remember the name of, I believe, called the Human Genome Project. ran for 13 years. It started in 1990 and ended in 2003. It got all kinds of headlines, quite rightfully, in the scientific press, before, during, and after. And it cost about $3 billion. It took in, inhaled the efforts of hundreds, if not thousands, of the greatest minds in life sciences. And again, $3 billion, 13 years. Its job was to sequence, which is a fancy way of saying read, a solitary human genome. That feat, that 13-year, $3 billion feat, which ended in 2003, that's not all that long ago, can be done for a couple hundred bucks in an afternoon by a, a, you know, a really smart lab tech who may or may not be a college university graduate. I will be beyond astounded if synthetic biology and related life science technologies have been with us longer don't just utterly conquer and lay waste to cancer. And that seems impossible because we and our ancestors have been grappling with that for thousands of years. But guess what? We and our ancestors grappled with smallpox for thousands of years, with human flight, with so many other things. And as soon as we conquer them three years later, we're all like, eh, you know, right? That's coming. The organ shortage. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people live abbreviated, truncated, and if they're lucky enough to get access to dialysis or even an organ transplant, really, really diminished lives for lack of enough human organs. That is almost certainly going to be conquered by Synbio. There's a big push in the 90s to make basically pigs become great organ donors for humans, but it ran into this intractable wall because there's dozens of retroviruses that pigs are vulnerable to that don't really do anything to pigs. They're just in their genome, but they're devastating to a human, made transplants impossible. There are now transgenic pigs, both in China and the United States, from which all these retroviruses have been banished. And if things go as they are likely to go, pig organ donors are going to basically get rid of the horrible crisis that we have in a terrible inadequacy of kidneys and other things. Clean meat is another one. This is meat grown in a vat, but it is cellularly and molecularly identical to the meat that would come from a sentient being, but it doesn't come from a sentient being. No animal ever lives, suffers, has its life abbreviated, lives in a factory farm, etc. That is meat. And the carbon footprint of the meat that's generated in this manner, and this is still, we're going to start seeing this on shelves in a very low single digit number of years, but not yet. That is meat that will be generated with a tiny carbon footprint. And whatever choices we're making, the fact is that there are lots and lots of people in the world who suffer malnourishment and malnourishment that could be addressed to a significant degree by an addition to meat to their diet, which is inaccessible to them financially. And this kind of clean meat will at some point, and I don't think it's a, maybe this is a large single digit number of years, but it's going to be more flavorful. It's certainly going to be more ethical. It's going to be way, way, way more carbon friendly, and it's going to be less expensive than meat than traditional meat. Synbio-based biofuels 
that again don't require massive fields of corn that could be eaten getting turned into ethanol you know the climate crisis will be largely if not entirely cured by synbiotechnologies i think a lot faster than most of us dare to hope while synthetic biology offers to cure diseases end hunger and reduce global warming the same technology in the hands of a suicidal nihilist could lead to the end of humanity in that year 2011 Independent research teams, I don't know why two teams did it at the same time. I assume they were coordinating to some degree. I never really got into the deep history. But one in Wisconsin, one in Holland, created modified H5N1 strains that had all the deadliness of the original, but roughly the transmissibility of measles. Now, this thing got out. I don't know how we could say anything other than game over. Quote, unquote, good guys virologists who have absolutely no interest in destroying the world and every interest in fighting virus is better, created using tools and techniques and having budgets and lab equipment and postdoctoral students and tools that perhaps almost nobody else in the world had. And lo and behold, in 2011, this thing didn't get out, nor did it get out in 2012, 2013, et cetera. But nine years have gone by and the underlying tools have gotten so much more powerful, so much more widespread, so much cheaper and something very important, Something called CRISPR has been invented. CRISPR is an acronym, and it is a very, very powerful way of editing DNA and RNA. And it is a very, very powerful way of making living creatures do things that they never would have evolved to do in nature, but to do your bidding. To make organs replaceable, from pig organs trans replaceable into humans, to make biofuels, to make clean meat, or to make H5N1 as deadly as measles. You know, it could do any of those things. It doesn't care. It's a tool. It's like a pair of scissors or commercial jet. And CRISPR technology is revolutionary. CRISPR technology already is enabling unbelievable things. It will enable many more. But it could certainly make feats like the one, not necessarily precisely the one, but like the one that were done in 2011, replicable by all kinds of people. CRISPR is taught in high schools now, as it should be. It's a really, really, really cool technology. And the high school kids who encounter it and become passionate about it and go on to get, you know, uh, graduate degrees and PhDs and postdoctoral work in CRISPR might do all kinds of things to save our lives. But this ability to create something that lethal has become widely proliferate. And at the same time, in any given year, we create a certain number of guys, really invariably all guys, like the Vegas shooter. I would say that many people in academic and commercial labs, if they were twisted in exactly the right way, could probably at this point destroy humanity. I mean that literally. And how many people is that? Is it dozens? Is it hundreds? Probably more like hundreds than dozens, probably more like hundreds than thousands. I don't know the precise number. Nobody does. But it's a much higher number than the number of people who could have, if they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, destroyed the world during the Cold War. That number was roughly two. And we spent trillions of dollars, quite rightly, during the Cold War, creating a system of tripwires, ways of letting steam out of the system, diplomacy, conventional armies, all this apparatus to make sure those two generally very well-adjusted, very well-educated people who really, really didn't want to destroy the world, making sure they indeed did not. Trillions of dollars, two people. I would say at this point, it's hard for me to imagine it ain't hundreds right now who could come pretty damn close to that if they really, really went feral. And that number is not going to stay at hundreds. It is going to grow 
exponentially, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. Now, who would ever do such a thing? I don't know. Let's ask the guy who killed 56 people in Las Vegas just for the joy of it. Oh, actually, we can't. He's dead. Let's ask the Columbine kids. Ooh, also dead. Let's ask the pilot of that German wings plane who killed 144 infants and retirees and people from every age in between. Oh, no, he's dead, right? Every year, our society, our psyche, our phenotype, generates about 800,000 people who end their own lives. It's a terrible thing. Every one of those things is a tragedy. Virtually none of those people take anybody with them, but some do. Of those who take someone with them, very, very few on a percentage basis decide to take as many strangers with them as possible, but some do. Of those who take as many strangers with them as possible, a completely unponderable number would take thousands if they could. They just don't get to because technology doesn't allow it. An imponderable number would take millions or billions or even all of us. We don't know what that ratio is. But what I can tell you is that in my country, the United States, probably not as true now that we're under COVID lockdown, but there has been over the last few years an average of one mass shooting per day. And some of those people are suicidal. And some of those people kill as many strangers as they can. And some of those people would kill all of us if they simply could, but they cannot. But that could change. In fact, that's going to change. Whether it is for a real-life bomb villain or an angry teenager, the Home Toolkit for Printing Humanity Ending Viruses is approaching reality. Yet humanity has not yet demonstrated its ability to be universally responsible. Nicholas Daniloff, author of the book Conversations with the Future, said, Humanity's technological power is far surpassing our wisdom to apply it. Nuclear energy, global warming, artificial intelligence, surveillance, species extinction and environmental disaster, these are just examples of the same thing over and over again. The key here is as long as our technological power exceeds our ability to control it and to moderate it, we're going to be doing more harm than good. But we won't be able to stop the march of technology. Kranzberg's second law stated, invention is the mother of necessity, which Sam Lessin echoed, stating that technology will continue to grow until it reaches its natural conclusion. I'm a technological determinist. Like I believe that kind of the nature and the, the way technology operates ends up getting exposed in the services and products that exist globally. And so I think I still believe that a lot of the first principles perspective, which is the only thing you can follow in a 10-year horizon, like it's very hard to follow anything other than first principles when you're kind of going for longer than a few year period. You know, we're going to kind of see more of the implications of technology being deployed at massive scale, what that means for surveillance, uh, what that means for how we manage societies, you know, what the social pushback is that comes from that, et cetera. What's possible to be done will be done. And the reality is, is like it was never before possible to track conversations or locations at, at scale. We now can do it, right? Like, and the reality is, is it's pretty useful right now. I'm a huge believer in the value of privacy. It's one of the things I'm most concerned about because, it, because is that basically we're in a world where there's new types. People have never talked about things like freedom of memory before, but now we, that's actually a real issue, right? And like we don't have a vocabulary for it and we don't know how to value it. If someone told you, hey, here's the deal. I want to know where you're going. And if you let me know where you're going, you can walk around the city and do whatever you want. It's like most people will take that deal, right? Like 
that's actually a pretty good deal, like given the scenario we're in. The question is, will you ever see that deal get walked back? Like once that's true, will it ever time out? Will you ever go back to it? I think it's gonna be really challenging, right? Because the reality is, is like that's a really cool superpower for a society to have. It is huge long-term challenges to freedom and liberty. And like, you know, it's a very brittle system. Like once that exists, will it get abused? Of course it'll be abused, right? Like you have to assume that at some point in the next 50, 100, 200 years, some really bad stuff will happen because of that. But I just don't ever see it getting walked back. Rahm Emanuel, who President Obama appointed as the White House Chief of Staff, famously said, You never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that, it's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. As the world moves from one crisis to the next, the state continues to use each one as an opportunity to push us ever closer to Orwell's 1984. The Patriot Act was passed just 45 days after the September 11th attacks, turning every American citizen into a suspect under the guise of catching terrorists. The change to surveillance laws expanded the authority of the government to monitor phone calls, emails, collect bank and credit reports and track all online activity. In China, the term Weiji means crisis, and it is a combination of two words, Wei, which means danger, and Ji, which means opportunity. For us, this pandemic is an opportunity to change the things about our lives we don't like. The time we spend commuting to work, the food we eat, and how much time we get to spend with our families. But for the state, it is an opportunity to take us further down Orwell's totalitarian roadmap. And thus, another question we should be asking is how important is our privacy? We are at a a similar historic moment with regard to civil liberties as we were right after 9-11. That's Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. And as we saw the Patriot Act and other similar legislation pop up in countries like the United Kingdom and across Europe and others, we saw the rise of the surveillance state really in its in its true form after 9-11. And governments obviously used the excuse that they needed to keep their people safe as a way of introducing new kinds of surveillance into people's lives, warrantless surveillance, mass surveillance, right? Stuff we hadn't really seen before. I think we're at the sim- similar moment with COVID where Governments and authorities and corporations are realizing that people are willing to give up their privacy and freedom for public health, or at least they're more open to it. Whereas even, you know what, they, they may have soured on the idea of giving up their rights and freedoms for, to fight terrorism. So all of a sudden they get a, another chance. And now on a silver platter comes COVID and they can basically say that we need to know more about you and you need to donate your data and, and reveal more about yourself so that society can function normally, so we can go back to normal. And this is this Orwellian doublespeak that you even see. And one of the Australian ministers came out and said that basically you all need to use this uh, contact tracing, this digital contact tracing app to get back to normal, which is, of course, nonsense because normal wasn't the government having a, a real-time record of everything you're doing. In Israel, Taiwan and Singapore, there is little evidence to show that contact tracing apps and big data have actually worked in solving the coronavirus problem. Yet we're about to have an app automatically downloaded onto all Apple and Android phones, around a third of the world's population, in a bid to contact trace the virus. But what are we giving away? The techno-utopian technology-will-save-us narrative has been that we can replace that with these apps. And that's not been born true. That's not true, despite what Google and Apple have said. But like in like after 9-11, the authorities 
across the world want to use this opportunity to expand their powers. This is just what's happening. And we have to fight back against it. And the easiest way to do it is just to show that digital contact tracing doesn't work. And it's stunning to watch Apple and Google, two of the world's largest companies, come out and say, hey, it works. If they bury that in the first two paragraphs as if it's assumed that it works. So all these tech journalists who were excited about this Apple Google initiative at the beginning of April, I'm watching all of them respond to this and being super excited about this. They don't, they're not questioning the, the premise of the whole thing. They, they don't, no one's questioning it. The whole premise is wrong. Digital concentration doesn't work. So no, don't install Bluetooth tracking system on billions of phones and create a real-time surveillance apparatus for world's authorities. So if we give in now to the idea that we need surveillance to fight COVID, we are both increasing the effectiveness and the efficacy of the surveillance state and we're normalizing it. We're basically giving up. We're saying that it needs to be part of our lives moving forward. So, so this is a very important moment for us where we have to stand up and say, no, we don't need mass surveillance to fight COVID. We don't need digital contact tracing apps. They are proven so far to not work well and they infringe massively on our civil liberties. The end result of us giving into the normalization of mass surveillance is that it's a slippery slope that leads to color coding and social engineering, right? So the country in the world that's experimented the most with mass surveillance in the name of public health to fight COVID is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party. And in China, as citizens are coming out of lockdown, as they're going back to work, they need to show a particular color on an app on their phone to leave their building or get on public transit or go to the market or do anything in, in their daily lives. And that color is either red, yellow, or green, or some variant of that. And if you don't have a green, you're not going anywhere. And guess what? Those codes aren't biometric. They're not connected to your body. They're assigned to you by some algorithm or by some authority, right? So all of a sudden, the government, which it's not like they didn't have enough Orwellian surveillance tech to begin with, they've added a whole new layer with the excuse of COVID and essentially with the consent of the people. I mean, it's not a democracy, but again, most people are willing to be like, oh yeah, this is the new normal because I don't want to get sick, right? They can't go anywhere without the proper color from the authorities. And of course we know that's going to be abused. And they're saying it's a temporary measure, but as we know, there's nothing more permanent than temporary measures. You might be thinking, well, yeah, but I'm not living in a single party authoritarian regime like China. That's what the people of Turkey said only two decades ago, when Turkey was a beacon of liberal democracy. Yet since 2010, President Erdogan has been dismantling democracy and freedom, turning Turkey back into an authoritarian regime. His leadership has seen the erosion of civil liberties, freedom of speech, and increasingly, since the attempted coup in 2016, the arrest of hundreds of journalists, civil rights workers, and opposition politicians. In the last decade, it has won the title of the country to have the highest number of jailed journalists, more than once, higher than both China and Iran. Ah, but that's Turkey. That couldn't happen in a Western country, you say. But just last month, Hungary, which borders the lovely Austria, announced that its leadership can rule with unlimited power for unlimited time. The country's leader, Orban, can suspend any law and implement any new ones. Oh, and elections have been suspended indefinitely. So when we talk about the erosion of civil liberties and the creeping involvement of the state, giving them access to all our data is another step towards tyranny. Now, governments, especially the Chinese Communist Party, can, can kind of like optimize and automate that process by sucking up all of your communications and behaviors and movements 
and they can have these algorithms analyze that. It's not a perfect science. Some people call it Kafkaesque more than Orwellian, right? But it's getting there, and they, their intention is to basically have a real-time understanding of what everybody's doing in, in, in China, and and then have that ability to not only control and, and come in with the iron fist when they need to, but they don't really want to do that. Their real goal is is to self uh, is to encourage self censorship and to create a chilling effect, to create a climate of fear, and that's what this sort of surveillance state does really well. People get afraid; they know that the government's watching, right? And uh, now they know the government's not just watching their movements, but watching what they spend, watching when they make a transaction, watching when they send a message. As Melvin Kranzberg said in his first law, technology is neither good nor bad. It is down to us as humans to use it for good. We are on the precipice of some of the most incredible advancements in human civilization, from curing disease to building colonies on Mars. But we are walking a tightrope, and for the first time, the power to end humanity could fall into the hands of an individual. We need to establish the moral responsibility to ensure that we protect this fragile planet and the 8 billion people that live on it. This is why we must hold the state to the highest level of scrutiny. History shows us how the government can and will use technology for bad, from the infringement of our civil liberties to the millions of lives lost in war. As the state pushes new laws and surveillance on us, under the guise of safety, we should remember Benjamin Franklin's warning. They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. The coronavirus will be taught in future history classes. We need to ensure that the post-coronavirus chapter is where we dismantled the Orwellian infrastructure, not propaganda to justify an Orwellian world. When I think about the ethics of technology, what fascinates me is that we're moving from a world in which Big Brother, in which the government, in which the Fortune 50 define what we do with it to a world in which technology is far more democratic and we can decide what we do with it for ourselves. And so the real question that I see is not what happens in China, what does the United States do, what does North Korea do? It's what do we do? What do cities do? What do states do? What do small companies and entrepreneurs do with this technology to make the world a better place or to make it more dangerous? We can't rely on governments to do all of that work for us anymore. We're participants in the choice. And so in a world where you can learn how to create a nasty virus. You don't need to be in a government lab to do that. It's not the government's responsibility to protect us anymore. It's all of our responsibility. When I think about the future of ethics and technology, I don't think that the question that gets splattered across the headlines about what do governments do, what what was that good thing, what was that bad thing, I don't think that's relevant. I think the relevant question is what do we do? That was Jonathan Brill. I'm Peter McCormack, and this was Defiance. This show was produced by Tom Patterson and Danny Knowles. Additional thanks to Daniel Johnson for artwork, as well as guests Jonathan Brill, Ross Dawson, Sam Lessin, Rob Reed, and Alex Gladstein. Our website is defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch all our films. Support from Defiance comes from Kraken, 
the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin. Available at Kraken.com or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I am Peter McCormack. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, at whatbitcoindid.com. And I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance. Defiance.